Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and Emily Wallace. Today, we're talking about a few things. Uh, we're going to give you an update on the New South Wales land tax slash stamp duty option that's coming into play very soon. Uh, we're talking about the change of heart with the Queensland land tax and what that now means for investors. And Pippus has released a survey, an annual survey, Property Investment Professionals of Australia. So we're going to thrash that survey out in more detail because some really interesting stuff that's come out of that from investors all around Australia. So, Emily, let's get into it. Let's do it, John. Now, John, before we get into what we're talking about today, just uh, probably something to pull up on that the listeners might not be aware of is the idea of being a member of what we know as PIPA, and as you rightly pointed out, it's Property Investment Professionals of Australia, which you are a member of, correct? I am indeed, yes. Both uh, Solvair Wealth and Envisage uh, are members um, and as an individual, correct? And what does that mean? Like, have you had to do something to be a member or what does PIPA sort of provide in the industry? Yeah, so look, I, I suppose we'd call it a governing body. Um, it's, it's there to maintain some sort of order within the industry um, because, as you know, property is not a, a regular, regulated or, or um, adhered to financial product. So um, the, it can get a bit rogue out there in the real world. So they have a code of conduct um, which um, everyone abides by and there's professional standards through accreditation um, through, through being a PIPA member that we um, continue to uphold on an annual basis. So there is a fee to pay there, um, but uh, generally speaking, if, if someone wants to reach out to someone in the industry, uh, then yeah, that should be generally the first port of call for someone if they if they want to find someone. So yeah, just quickly, if you go onto the PIPA website, you can you can scroll down and choose by category, whether that be an accountant, a buyer's agent, a financial planner, a lawyer and solicitor, a mortgage broker, um, a property manager, quantity surveyor, real estate agent, valuer. So there's a whole range of businesses um, within the, the group and, and then you can just search in your local area. Yeah, awesome. I think that's just really good context for everyone to have as to um, what we're about to dive into, but just more so that it even exists because every industry has different associations and different bodies. They all do different things. But if you're not really in the real estate industry or more generally the finance and property space, you might not know about PIPA. So there you go. Hopefully you've learned something today. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so as I mentioned in the uh, in the intro, there's um, the surveys come out as they do each year. And I think there was around about, uh, yeah, there was 1,600 odd investors who took part in the survey. So they could have been 
from anywhere around the country. Um, so we're just going to go through uh, a, a snapshot, I suppose, of what the survey results uh, have given us. Can I just say, I love it when reports have good little infographics with snapshots. It makes it so much more digestible in terms of the information that comes out of them. Um, always yes. love a little infographic. Absolutely. So maybe we start with the first one and you've kindly um, passed on your member report to me so I can see it as well. <laughs> uh, the first one being talking about investors offloading stock. So mm. last year's survey found that 18% of investors were considering selling in the year ahead with a staggering 16.7% of investors committing to that intention and selling one or more properties in the past 12 to 24 months, according to the 2022 results. That is an extremely high follow-through rate when you look mm. at 18% had intention and nearly 17% actually did it. I yeah. wonder why it's been so high. Yeah, when I first read that, I, I, I took two things from it. Number one is, okay, they've had maybe some outstanding growth in the last three or four years and take their money and run. Where they put it, don't know. Uh, the second part of it was maybe a little bit of fear creeping in to say, well, yeah, interest rates are going to rise. Um, if, if I put my numbers in at 5% interest rate or 6%, I'm going to be in trouble here. So I'm going to get out while the going's good. That they, They're the two main reasons that I could see. What, what did you surmise? Well, I think the interesting thing behind that stat would be to understand the average hold time of those properties. You know, how long have those people actually held on to them? Did they buy at a time when the GFC hit and they managed to really scoop something up that was a good deal at the time and now it's come to fruition that they've held it for 10, 12, 15 years? Um, I would have thought hold time does play into that, but also the... Uh, certainly the snowball effect of this amazing market that we've just been through for sellers, I think would play into such a high follow-through rate for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would just be concerned that if someone did only have it for two or three years, got some great growth, but their view was to long-term hold this thing, like i.e. 8, 10, 12, 15 years, I'm concerned that they're emotionally looking short term for those gains and maybe in five years time they're looking back saying maybe I should have kept that property. That that would be my worry um, if, if I was an investor there because I think you've got – with property unlike shares, you've got so many transaction costs, haven't you, when you've got stamp duty on the way in, which we'll talk about soon as to that now being an option, uh, but then selling costs through an agent. So – I like to think, well, if I hold a property for 10 years and I pay 40 grand of stamp duty on the way in, right, that's averaged out at four grand a year. But if I buy something and sell it within 12 months, that's 40 grand a year, right? So that's just my basic black and white baths on on the whole transaction cost thing. So yeah, interesting. Oh, 100%. Do you know what I also like in that too? You know, people who were intending a long-term hold, but they, they are uh, thought they'd get a really good deal in selling and they've sold out sooner. Have you ever seen those games at the arcades where you stack the blocks up and you have to keep going and going, stack them on top of each other and you hit like number seven and there's a little consolation prize? Yes. And it's like consolation prize or go further. Yeah. And then you've got three more levels to get the big prize. I feel yeah. like people have tapped out at the consolation prize if they sold ahead of when they're intending That's to right. if it was a long-term hold. Yeah, yeah. They and got I, enticed. And I think we've said it uh, numerous times here is that I think there are more people out there that wish they didn't sell than 
were happy that they did sell. Um, but any case, uh, in, interesting stat. It's a it's a very large proportion of investors that have surveyed to say that they're, they're they've sold. Mm. Yeah. So following on from that stat of of so many people uh, selling property. Also, what they mentioned was 65% of investors sold a property over the past two years to an owner-occupier, right? So Ooh. that leads us to another major, major issue out there at the moment, and that is the undersupply of rental properties, doesn't it? Um, when you feel that all those investors have now sold their property, meaning that no one can rent it from them. They've sold it to an owner-occupier who's going to live in it. Uh, there's just now less properties out there to rent than there was this time last year. Well, it's a dual issue, isn't it? It's the rental side, but it's also the fact that we know, typically speaking, anyone who's buying their own home is emotional in the price tag that they pay and they will extend themselves to get into a certain area. So the dual effect of investors selling out and selling to an owner OCK is also these prices just keep going up because they're emotionally fueled. So it's really, that's a high percentage, 65% of those people who sold a property sold it to an owner that really does have ripple consequences. Yes. And the rental market is, to be honest, quite scary at the moment. I think the lack of rental stock, we need investors. Yeah. We really do. Absolutely. And, and there's so many people in the Facebook group um, and just in general um, talking about how it's it's unfair for the, the end user, which is the tenant, to have these price hikes of, of rents. Um, and especially in, and I think one was mentioned in uh, in the group about the Gold Coast, rent, um, and we've spoken about it on the, on the show a few episodes ago, like increasing $150 a week. Uh, going from like your six hundred to your seven fifty, like that—that's outrageous in terms of the increase, um, and and a lot of it has to do with the undersupply of available properties. And uh, look, I'm I'm in two minds on this, and I think I've mentioned it before. Like mm. you look at, okay, I own a property, let's say in on the Gold Coast as an example. Um, the the property manager recommends that I put it up one hundred and fifty dollars. And like, okay, poor old tenant has to come up with an extra $150 a week. Um, Not easy to do, but if they move out, they're going to have to pay that anyway because that's now the going rate. So you're in a a, a no-win situation. Definitely either that or they get displaced because they have to go to a different location. Typically, the way Australia works is just keep going up further north and north and north to you mm. don't have any of the country left and, and you very much get displaced from being near friends and family and work, the extra travel time. It's a vicious cycle of this rental crisis and I really think the only answer to it quite literally is the supply so that investors can buy up and have rentals available for people. That is the fundamental issue in the property market on both sides. Yeah. Totally. And, and call us capitalists for, for building po- own wealth portfolios, but uh, that's actually helping society by uh, being able to provide a, a dwelling for someone to live in. Um, and, and yes, you don't have to increase it by 150, but you're also running a business. So can you get a happy medium and, and, uh, and, and put it up 100? I don't know. You've just got to work out your own situation but uh, and understand that the interest rates are rising. So the running costs of running that business are also now higher. Without harping on too much about the, um, the rental side of things because I know people know how bad it is, but just to add to it with another stat that's come from the report is that unfortunately in a sign of more rental stress 
for tenants to come, the survey also found that about 19% of investors are considering selling in the next 12 months as well. Now, given the strike rate with owner-occupied resale, that would suggest that potentially um, we might see even more rental hikes or rental stress to come. So really not that ideal. No, no, it's not. Um, yeah, so look, it's uh, it's not going away anytime soon and, and we've, we've seen some research that suggests over the next five years there's, there's going to be some increased building um, being done but it's not catching up with the amount of um, – of requirement for for new housing, and that's because of a whole range of things. Um, and the the uh, overseas migration is obviously building again as well. Correct. Just as a side note, though, on the construction, I'm not sure if you've started to see this, John. But interesting for listeners to have some intel. Usually, America sees things before we do, right? It's usually how the trend goes. It happens yep. over there, then it happens over here. Um, I follow a number of realtors, real estate agents and people over there. And a lot of them are saying uh, construction workers, builders, renovators are actually calling the agents to say, do you have any work for us? So all this hype around lack of trades and lack of uh, supplies and things like that seems to be cooling off over there that they're the contractors are now reaching out for work to say, do you have anything we can build or anything that we can help with? Mm. Whereas, you know, 12 months ago, you couldn't even find a, a tradie anywhere. Yeah. I do wonder if that will trickle into Australia a little bit more that we will have better resources and more availability for construction provided we have the land to do so for new builds. Mm. But um, just a bit of an interesting one that, uh, that hasn't happened in a while that people have been reaching out for work in the construction industry. They've been flooded with work. They have, yeah, and it, it's actually going the, the other way at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. In Australia at least, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so reasons why investors are thinking of selling. Um, the number one reason, Emily, is that Queensland's new land tax law um, penalising owners of property in other states and territories. That was nearly 31%. Okay. Now, we know that that's now been overturned. So now we're saying, well, 31% of, of investors might not be thinking of selling anymore. Maybe that's going to be the case, but I suppose time will tell. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think now that it has been overturned, maybe it's less pressure for someone to sell out um, and they don't have to worry about their ongoing land tax costs and things like that. But certainly you wouldn't want to, I mean, I myself, I don't know that I would make a call on selling a property based off a rule change that overall, if you look at the growth rate of an investment property versus the cost of the potential land tax implication, it would have to be pretty high to want to consider selling because of that one item. Mm. If there are multiple items that accumulated and didn't really make sense to hold it, then sure. But I do think we need a bit of a balance when it comes to these things. Yeah, absolutely. And and what I find staggering, uh, that was the highest percentage, but then followed by that was changing tenancy legislation, making it too costly or hard to manage property, the threat of losing control control of your asset because of new or potential government legislation and then the threat of rental freezes being enforced by governments. All those things, the top four uh, highest reasons as to why investors are thinking of selling are things that are absolutely out of our control 
Um, and we talk about all the time setting a good strategy and, and building a good portfolio. We want to manage the things in our control. Um, and yes, we need to be aware of things out of our control, but I think people can quickly get carried away about uh, these these potential changes or changes that come in that at the end of the day, people have been investing in real estate for 100 years. Um, these short-term changes a, a lot of them don't come through and B, if they do come through, they, they may get quickly overturned because Australian government doesn't let property fail um, and I've heard that time and time again over the last 30-odd years of, of my uh, adult life is that the Australian government relies too much on residential real estate to let it fail so we're not going to make radical changes stop investors buying. Correct. I think what's interesting about all those items that flag in an investor's mind as the reasons why they would sell out is there the reasons aren't coming about because the government wants investors to sell out. It's actually more about protecting tenants further. Like, for example, the rental freeze, that's not so that investors can't make money or can't operate you know, their portfolio. That's actually more so the way I interpret it is to look after tenants and make sure we don't have a crisis where we've got extreme homelessness because people can't afford to live anywhere. That's yes. where I believe that comes from. But it's interesting that the reasons that are protecting more so the tenants are also the reasons that an investor would consider selling out. Yeah. And, and the, the whole rental freeze thing I, I get as a band-aid effect, but it's not providing a real solution, is it? The, the real solution is to build more homes and the real solution mm. is to get property or get approvals through council quicker than the, the slow timeframes that they're taking now. It's it's to give more incentives to build more homes. And and obviously the through the COVID period the last few years, we'd experienced a lot of first home buyer incentives to, to build their own home um, or to, to buy investment properties and, and things like that's That's fantastic, but there needs to be something done on a major level um, other than just the rent freeze, I think anyway. Agree. One of the stats that's come out relates to some of the expenses. I mean, everybody has knows that the cost of living more generally and just everything's gone up because inflation naturally things do go up, but particularly in the last 12 months. So investors um, reported significant increases in expenses related to the properties that they have with uh, almost 89% of respondents indicating their holding costs had increased. But of those, 59% of investors said they were only passing on 5 to 10% of these higher costs to their tenants. So that's probably things such as, well, actually, it's a bit redundant to charge more for management fees because the more the tenant pays, the higher the management fees because yeah. it's percentage-based. Yeah. But certainly other parameters around whether it's maintenance to the property or it is um, your land tax or ongoing um, interest rates and things like that that do cost you to keep that property – I don't know. I don't know. Do you think it's reasonable 5 to 10% has been passed on to the tenants? Yeah. In, in some ways, Emily, I think that is a nothing stat because what you can charge a tenant is what the, what, what the public's prepared to pay based on the supply and demand, right? Like if you've got a three-bedroom house charging $400 a week and all of a sudden you say, oh, no, I've got extra costs, so I want to now charge 500 but the going rate for a three-bedroom house is 400 then they'll just move out and go and live, into something, live in something else of a cheaper value. Um, but when there's not 
that pressure on um, having the choice to be able to go and live somewhere else, then that's when rents increase. I don't know. Am I missing the point there? No, I agree with you. It is a bit of a redundant thing, isn't it? Like kind of doesn't make a huge amount of sense, particularly when there's other options that are affordable or, you know, sit within the price line of what they should be. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't – and even as an investor myself and, and even yourself, I don't feel like I've passed on costs to a tenant just for the sake of, you know, the fact that everything's going up. Naturally, rents rise, mm. but beyond that, it's not like it's being deliberate to increase it just because, you know, we're feeling that we're spending more money on the property. Yeah, well, I'm in a lot of ways guided by my property managers. They say to me on an annual mm. basis, John, this is what we think it could rent for. Uh, what do you want to do? Okay, is that going right? Um, how how loyal has the tenant been, et cetera, et cetera? Um, so, yeah, any case, it's um, the fact are rents are rising anywhere around the country, right? Yeah, 100%. There's, no, there's absolutely no doubt about that. Yeah. There's an interesting one here around the uh, sentiment of believing it's a good time to invest. So, from this year's survey, about 58% of investors believe that now is a good time to invest in residential property, which is actually down the year before in 2021, it was 62% of respondents. And the record was 67% of respondents back in 2020 thought it was a good time to invest. That's interesting and good intel as well for home buyers. I mean, the less, <laughs> it's such a it's such a swinging balance, isn't it? Like the less investors that are in the market, the more opportunity first home buyers have. However, we need the investors to have the rental <laughs> properties so that those people can have a place to live in the meantime. So right. it's, uh, it's tricky. However, I do think when you're a first home buyer or just a home buyer in general competing against investors, a lot of investors do tap out at a certain figure where it doesn't make financial sense for them anymore in terms of looking at the yields. A yield isn't important to a home buyer. You're living in the property. So there's other parameters that come into effect. But it is interesting to see the sentiment's gone down a little bit. However, 58% is still a pretty solid percentage of all respondents. It is. Yeah, no, it's def- definitely a high amount. Um, yeah, but but I suppose it's, uh, yeah, 67 two years ago, like that stands to reason interest rates lowest point. Um, interest rates are now higher. So, yeah, that that's probably the, the major reason for the decrease. But, yeah, I think it's still a, a good chunk that want to get out there and do it and, and most uh, are wise with their investing knowing it's a long-term um, play and there'll be ups and downs along the journey. But essentially the time to buy is when you can afford to, when you can get some lending and your, and your mindset says, yeah, I'm good to go. Yeah, correct. All right, let's take a break and we'll come back and talk about the QPIA, Qualified Property Investment Advisor. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Emily, to round off this survey, uh, virtually all, 90% of investors continue to think that any provider of advice should have formal property investment training or education. Likewise, 75% of investors said a QPIA qualification, qualified property investment advisor, uh, would influence their decision to work with a particular property investment professional. Right. I think that says a lot about education and training. And as you touched on earlier in the episode, John, you know, this PIPA is really a body that keeps the industry accountable to a certain standard, particularly when it comes to investment properties and I guess investment advice, really selecting a particular property based on the outcomes that the client is wanting and the long-term projections. It is interesting though that it is not mandatory. I personally think Mm. there should be more mandates in real estate and finance in general. Yes. But it's not mandatory but it's very evident that people do value qualification and education of the professional they are looking to hire in the process. Yeah, and, and I think the grey area is for a lot of people. Um, you, you go and train to be a teacher, you do a four-year teaching degree at university. It's got to be a, a tertiary uh, qualification with a certificate that that uh, is pretty much um, similar right across the country. Uh, you, you do the same for nursing, you do the same to be a doctor, you do the same to be a physiotherapist, whatever it might be. As a property investor or a property investment advisor, whatever you want to call it, there's a whole lot of short courses, there's um, there's a lot of uh, privatised institutions that offer courses as such that will say you can be a qualified uh, property advisor or investment advisor or whatever you want to call it, coach, etc. So I, I think there's that's the first part of it is a bit of a grey area as to where you've got your qualification from. Um, and, and yes, we're qualified property investment advisors here at Envisage, but I strongly still believe that 20 years of investing experience personally will be much more beneficial to the client than coming out of um, school at 18, doing a, a, a three-month short course in property investment advice and then saying you're a, a qualified property investment advisor. That's not downplaying the QPIA accreditation by any means. It's just natural facts that experience in any field is, uh, is what you should be looking for. Definitely agree with that. I think the experience trumps a piece of paper a lot of the time in a in multitude of industries. But more generally, you know, I think everybody in the industry who is doing morally correct work by the client is certainly calling for more mandates, more minimum qualifications and a better overall outcome for anybody who engages with an investment specialist. Yeah, correct. Yeah. It's interesting though, like, um, and that sort of rounds out the the survey for us, but um, 
when when you go to a doctor, you, you don't look for their qualification. You, <laughs> you go into the health service and you, you say, oh, I want to see a doctor. Okay, there's a doctor. You go into a room and they, they look over you and, and try and fix you, right? Um, in, in this space, because it's unregulated, then there's, there's a lot more questions asked, which so there should be. Correct. Indeed. All right. So a few weeks ago, we spoke about the Queensland land tax reform. Um, Anna and her team, in their wisdom, wanted to, uh, I think, take a, a, a big money grab and, uh, and try and penalise investors for uh, the properties that they had in other states and aggregate it to uh, the land tax that they pay in Queensland overall. So if you had investment property in Queensland and you also had property in other states, then that land tax or the value of those properties in other states was going to be aggregated as a total amount. Um, now, thankfully, the other other premiers and other state bodies came together and said, well, hang on a minute, um, we're not going to support that. You're on your own here, Anna, uh, because essentially if, if we've got property in Queensland and we've also got property in New South Wales, how do they know what we've got in New South Wales and the, and the land value of that to be able to do uh, do an annual audit on. So they really needed the support of the other states to, to make that pass. So essentially that's what's happened is it's been um, turned over and uh, it's been put to put to bed, thankfully. Came to their senses. So it was, when you told me about it, it was the first time I actually heard about it because <laughs> you were across it and I own property in Queensland and didn't know. And then they retracted it. I was like, oh, well, all that worrying for nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you didn't have to worry because you only had – well, you worried for a short term. All The rest of yeah. us were worrying for a bit longer than, than you. But uh, <laughs> any case, it was, it was hot topic there for a while in, in my office because we were seriously navigating our way through this to say, well, okay, it, it doesn't stop us from investing but we just need to look at – uh, what we've got in our portfolios and then make an assessment as to where we're going to go next. And that uh, potential change did have an impact in, in potentially where we go. Now, now, thankfully, we never made a major decision for any client on uh, not buying in Queensland because of that. Um, but, and we still think there's some good buying up north. But uh, yeah, Thankfully, we've uh, we've still got some um, some ability to buy there with and and the land tax, as we all know, is is state based. So that will continue to be state based, and uh, the thresholds are, are reasonably fair, I think, um, in respect to uh, hitting that threshold and starting to pay land tax on an annual basis. Just putting it out there, though, wouldn't it be nice if it was just Australia wide, everything was the same? You wouldn't have to be across all these rules, all these different motions that are being put forward. It would just make so much sense. But we love being state-based. We love our own state rules, Yes, which I do understand. But gosh, it would make life easier if it's Australia-wide. Look, I'm loving what you're putting down. I totally agree. And that's just not uh, land tax. That's School holidays, that's, that's, uh, <laughs> that's state governments. Like, I don't know if we even need state governments, to be honest. Um, let's, just, let's just have one government and let them run the country. We're, we're not that big a place, surely. Nah, not at all. Would make yeah. life easier, but that's okay. It keeps it interesting and it gives us more things to talk about because every <laughs> state has something different going on. That's right. Um, speaking of, off air, you were mentioning to me that 
And this, I just need to tune into you, John, and I get my news. I don't need to worry about <laughs> listening to the uh, Sunrise or Today Show. But you did mention there was an article that came out today in the Fin Review about some New South Wales changes. So flicking to a different state now. Yes. What yes, is happening yes. in the land of New South Wales? Yes, because I just sit around and, and just read newspapers all day and, <laughs> and stay up to new, up to date on all of this stuff. But <laughs> um, look, I, I think. This has also been building for a while. Um, the New South Wales government, I actually don't mind this to have the option, but basically what it's uh, proposing and it, and it will come into play next year, but what they're proposing is basically saying to first home buyers, um, you've got the option of paying your stamp duty up front, uh, which can be quite sizable depending on the price that you're paying for the property, or you can opt in for the land tax amount on an annual basis. So we've, I, I think we've done some numbers on a, on a previous episode as to, to comparing it. I, I think we may have even done it on the main show with Glenn, but in any case, um, we've, we've got the option of paying stamp duty or land tax. Uh, as a first home buyer, that means that okay, uh, round figures. If we're if we're paying, I don't know, fifty grand in stamp duty because we're buying a a million dollar house or an eight hundred thousand dollar house, it just means that we don't have to find that fifty k. We'd be paying the stamp duty annually if we went over the threshold um, in New South Wales. So I think in in today's um, Fin Review, they did a uh, example. For, for properties up to 1.5, this this works for, right? So if you if it's over 1.5, I don't believe you're going to get any sort of um, relief from it. Um, first home buyers probably shouldn't be paying more than 1.5 mil for a property anyway. But in any case, um, 50K in stamp duty up front or $2,500 a year, right? So if we work that out, that's about 20 years, isn't it, before you'd break even against the, the stamp duty amount that you would have been paying up front. But do realise that as your land goes up in value, your land tax amount does increase as well. Oh, so it's not fixed based off the contract price of what you paid or what the value was at that time. It's reassessed and your payments could increase based off the increase in your land. That's right. Now, it's it's still a, a proposed land tax rule, but um, yeah, that that's the way it is now. It's uh, it's always a value of the land. There's an amount, and then a percentage of the land tax, uh, the land value, uh, which means that yeah, generally speaking, it will increase year on year. And so, if you were to be paying the stamp duty annually, yes, across no, no, as you suggested, there's, twenty there's years. No, there's no stamp duty annually. It's a one. It's an upfront fifty k. Or in that example, so there's an example. Okay, I buy a one point two million dollar house in Sydney, or, or wherever in New South Wales. Uh, I would be charged two two and a half thousand or two five six zero a year in land tax. Um, but would save fifty thousand eight hundred and seventy-five in upfront stamp duty cost. Right, got you. That's the example that they've used today. So, yep. yeah, obviously depends on the price of the property. But yes, the stamp duty is only paid once upfront, like it normally is. Or you can choose to go the the land tax method and pay that on an annual basis. You really have to uh, work out the price of your property and how long you're going to keep that property as well because that can can play a big part in it. Uh, but generally speaking, I would I would say that most first home buyers will say, no, I'm not paying the stamp duty. I'm just going to go the land tax option. Um, 
And important to note that if you sell that property, then the next owner has the choice of stamp duty or land tax. So it doesn't roll over or default to what you've chosen. It, you, the, the next owner has a choice of that. That's good to know. And I think it's an initiative that always the government's looking for. How can we get first home buyers into the market sooner or how can we lessen the barrier to entry because deposits are so hard to save. That's what everyone struggles with the most. Yes. That's why these initiative exists. Yeah. Uh, but certainly if your serviceability and your cash flow is fine, but your ability to save a lump sum is difficult, then this could be a great solution. Absolutely. Yeah, I think it is a great initiative. Uh, unfortunately for the government, they're going to lose out in the in the short term because they're not getting that quick cash grab of stamp duty. So they're going to be hot onto our rates notice with uh, with the land values and and continually increasing them is my assessment of that. Definitely, I do think just as a general note on this whole issue of stamp duty that stumps all everyone. You know, it's such an added cost on top of the property purchase price itself. The thresholds really need to be revised. I'm specifically referring to Victoria, but I'm sure the other cities could look at it too, other states, um, because home dwelling like dwelling values have gone up so much. So thresholds for stamp duty exceptions and concessions don't actually make sense in the current market. Hardly anyone can even really take advantage of them. So I do feel like if they revisited the thresholds Yearly, even every second year, it would be of benefit to home buyers, but they seem to just set them and let them sit there for multiple years and it just doesn't even really help anybody by year five or six. It's kind of a redundant type of thing. Yeah, so I totally agree with you. Uh, it needs to be revised constantly, doesn't it, because of the the increasing prices. Now, in, in a lot of states, like you're talking 600, 650K as, you, as your threshold amount, like it's a it's a one or two bedroom apartment in a lot of capital cities. So yeah, it's uh, it it does need to be revised. Uh, but just on the whole stamp duty thing, let's let's do a, another scenario or another example. So um, maybe f- first home owner buys in at eight hundred k, right? And the stamp duty just without having a stamp duty calculator in front of me, let's say it's forty thousand. So I don't have to pay the forty k. Uh, I just come up with my 10% or 20% deposit. Let's say I'm using 20%. So uh, I've, I put in 160K and my, my mortgage is, is 640 or my loan 640. And, and that's pretty much it. I'm in and I've paid some legal fees to get my contracts looked over and, and maybe building and pest and insurances and whatever. Um, the, the big question is, okay, I've avoided the stamp duty and I might pay a little bit of land tax um, depending on the land value or the size of the land that I've bought in New South Wales. The big question is, how am I going to handle that mortgage and the repayments on that 640K for me personally? Because what we might be then seeing is say, well, hang on, I don't have to put that 40 grand that I had saved up for stamp towards my deposit. Uh, Now I can go and buy something more expensive. And, And if we don't look at our repayments and we haven't got a really good mortgage broker in our corner, we could be out to sea with our pants down. I lost the end of that. We could buy something more expensive and then... <laughs> we could be out to sea with our pants down. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I love that that was repeated. <laughs> you could indeed. <laughs> 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 I think if people... 
<laughs> if people are overextending themselves or, yeah, going for that next jump up because the 40K is now accessible to them and it wasn't previously, then, yeah, we could see people in strife. I think a lot of it comes down to being sensible, you know, uh, and certainly being educated in what that means for your personal circumstances. Mm. But, yeah, if in the wrong hands, that could could turn out to actually be a negative thing. Yeah, because a lot of first-time owners that I speak to, they, they would like to and common sense, absolutely um, natural. We want to go and buy near where I grew up or where mum and dad is or, or in, a, in, a, in a good location that mum and dad are on the end of their journey. So they've built their way up to that suburb and I want to buy in there straight away. So now if I don't have to fork out the 40K in stamp, can I go and spend an extra 100 grand and get into that suburb that I want? So just make sure for listeners that we can manage those repayments and have some buffers up our sleeve and still live the life that we would like to live. Indeed. I totally agree with you there and I think it's a very yeah valid point to be aware and, and careful of. Cool. All right. So we've... Um, a, a bit of an opinionated podcast today. We've we gave our thoughts on a few different matters, but I, I think um, yeah, a lot of lot of change going on in in different states. The, the New South Wales one uh, will come into effect next year, um, so just just look out for that. But start to do your numbers now, first homeowners. Um, and I strongly think that other states will follow. Uh, the ACT have got some sort of hybrid transition method going on at the moment that's a bit hard to sort of um, understand. But uh, yeah, I think other states will follow because uh, of the uptake of first homeowners getting into the market maybe sooner rather than later. I think you could be very spot on there, John, definitely. I think it will only be a matter of time. We like to copy, don't we, state by state. Uh, also, just on the note of surveys and I guess data collection, I mean, I I thoroughly enjoy going through those sorts of stats and understanding, particularly that PIPA one that we spoke about today. But if anyone listening has seen a survey or stats that you think would be an informative piece for John and I to unpack in more depth, um, maybe you're a member of certain associations or maybe you've just seen something floating around online, always feel free to send it through to us or let us know what it is because I think uh, statistics and data are always a great thing to sit there and unpack and give our insights on, but also try and work out what's actually happening in this crazy marketplace at the moment. So if you've come across something, just let us know and we'll certainly unpack it in an episode in the future. Totally will. Love it. Very good. Well, uh, Emily, thank you for taking the time out on your holidays up in Noosa. Every day's a holiday, John. That's <laughs> it is not in really. your life. That's right. Especially <laughs> when you haven't got kids. Um, so, yeah. Look, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, love your support and we look forward to bringing you another episode soon. We'll see you next week. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, 
open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And if you're a first home buyer, I have the course just for you. Everything from pre-approval all the way through into your settlement and everything in between. How to place an offer, how to bid at auction, what to even look for at an open home and what questions to ask the agents. It's all covered in my online course. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Shepherd Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.